Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Ibram Rabari has been with us many times with Citigroup and head of economic uh, research for them, working with Catherine Mann and working with a great team, including Edward Morse on uh, petroleum and hydrocarbons. Ibram, let me just talk about a greater idea of stimulus in endless debt, even at a low interest rate. Does that just assume currency depreciation or potential devaluation? Tom and uh, John, it's great to be on once again, and that's a great question. And my short answer is no, it does not. And in fact, that's the point we've been making for our currency forecast, that in many cases, it's the ability to stabilize the economy through these very aggressive stimulus measures that, in fact, will pull in capital inflows and will be a support for asset prices and therefore also the exchange rate. So I don't think it's generally true that we should assume currency depreciation as a result of these massive liquidity injections. That being said, I think the aggressive actions by the Fed have certainly been one major factor that has made investors more confident to bet on currencies other than the dollar. So I think in the dollar-specific case, they've certainly contributed to the recent sell-off. On a weighting of the mathematics of this lift in gold up 23 25% folks off the March lows, Ibrahim Rabari, when you look at gold, do you ascribe it simply to these uncommon low real yields, these literally negative real yields across the entire system. Is that what's driving gold higher? I think it's certainly a a very important factor. And and if you look at the charts, you see that the correlation with real yields, and in particular with U.S. real yields, continues to be very strong. And even most recently, if we look at the last few weeks, the the latest uh, increase in gold prices has been uh, coming alongside a pretty steep decline in real yields as well. But we do think that there is a second element, which is, if you like, the quantitative part. So you have the the price driver, which is on the real interest rate side, but it's a quantitative driver, which is, in fact, again, the massive increase in central bank liquidity. And it is associated with this search for alternatives to the conventional currency. So we think there's kind of this two-pronged, these two-pronged pillars of support for gold prices, very low yields but also the search for alternatives. And I think gold stands out there alongside maybe the yen and currency space, but also to some degree some of the cryptocurrencies. What is truly original about this moment as well, Ibrahim, away from the cryptocurrencies, are the extra reasons people are looking to shun the dollar in this environment. And it's the belief that the U.S. becomes the source of instability as the reopening effort starts to stall in many states across America. We have had so many guests on this program in the last 48 hours, talk up a shift away from the United States and towards Europe and elsewhere because of how badly the reopening process is going in America. And for that reason, people are looking to fade the US dollar. Does that argument resonate with you, Ibrahim? Uh, I would say a version of the argument resonates with me, but it's, it's probably a little more flattering to the US because I think we should continue to ascribe a fairly exceptional position to the U.S. outlook. And we continue to think that the U.S. economy will bounce back earlier and more strongly than much of the rest of the world. But what is true from an investment standpoint is that the rest of the world is unusually heavily exposed to the U.S., and U.S. assets are unusually expensive relative to the rest of the world. 
And in an environment where there are a couple of clouds on the U.S. horizon, including a fairly uncertain uh, election, I do think it makes a great deal of sense for investors to diversify a little bit away from the U.S. And I think that's really what we're seeing. We're seeing some diversification given these kind of unusually high valuations and and high exposures from the U.S. And we also think that that should give you some further upside, for instance, for the euro against the dollar, for a couple of the other G10 alternative against the dollar. But I don't think this is its equivalent to riding off the U.S. In fact, we think the U.S. kind of growth exceptionalism probably still has uh, some legs uh, in it left coming perhaps out of the election. But for the next couple of months, it, it does put the U.S. on the back foot. All right, Ibrahim, the weakening of the U.S. dollar has been something a lot of people are trying to understand in order to figure out how long it has to run. You're saying that it does have longer versus the euro. Looking at Bank of America Global Research, they came out and they said that the Fed's stimulus, as you were talking about, compressing real rates, was the main driver of the weakening in the dollar, which raises a question, how much further can the Fed and will the Fed compress real yields and that that is the key to the dollar's trajectory? in the months to come. So what's the answer? How much further can the Fed go? Yes, very interesting. And um, as for yield, real yields, I should say we were a little bit surprised how much further yield yields have declined. And in particular, the decline in real yields of late has been driven by a pickup in inflation expectations in an environment where I think many of us don't really expect inflation to pick up. So we think the driver of the recent decline in real yields uh, is probably running a little bit out of steam, and that means maybe the nominal side, nominal interest rates have to do more of that work. But we do think that the, the bulk of the move has taken place. So when it comes to real yield as a driver, there might be another 10, 20 basis points in there, but we really don't expect uh, a, a lot further in terms of real yield downside. But it is also not the only driver. So what I was just alluding to in terms of drivers of uh, the U.S. dollar down, I think there is also a shift in terms of expectations of growth, perhaps some optimism for EU measures uh, that's coming into play as well. So if the dollar sells off, I think it increasingly has to come from some of these other elements rather than a further decline in real yield. Ibrahim Rabari with us from Citigroup. to drive forward the discussion on stimulus, uh, we have with us a gentleman from the 10th District, North Carolina. Patrick McHenry joins us. He has been steeped in Republican politics, going back to George Bush the Younger. He was intimately involved in that successful run for president uh, in 2000. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. What is the best outcome for conservative Republicans in this fiscal trajectory of the next six, seven, and eight weeks? For those that are frugal and have frugal constituents, what's the best outcome? Well, I mean, uh, ideological concerns are different uh, when you have a house fire. And what we have is a, is a major house fire here. So we've got to get that righted uh, and then get back on a solid footing here. So. For me, I think the approach is uh, how do you uh, how do you get people back in employment in a safe and effective way? So uh, the first piece there is health safety. Without health safety, nothing else matters. So we have to have substantial funds so that we can have a pipeline of treatment options that have been borne out by scientific proof. 
uh, as well as potentially a vaccine. You get that right, that, which of course requires a substantial amount of government money uh, with the private sector innovation. And then you get to the question of a rehiring bonus and tax policy that incentivizes businesses to get back in the, in the risk business, to safely reopen, uh, to take the proper risks and to know that they have a foundation upon which to take that risk. So I think that's really important. So rehiring uh, bonuses would be uh, substantial and helpful and a, and a tapering down or elimination of these uh, overly generous in, in major parts of the country uh, federal uh, benefits for unemployment. I think the combination of a bonus for rehiring and tapering down that unemployment benefit would be smart policy. Hey, Congressman, are you getting frustrated by the lack of clarity, the lack of details that you're getting from this administration in the month of July? Yes. Uh, look, we had a great result with the CARES Act. We saw uh, Pelosi and the House Democrats produce a partisan bill that got no Republican votes. They even lost Democrat votes. It was so far to the left. So that's not a serious point of discussion. What we want to hear is that is that agenda set so we can have Trump economy, too. We just came off of the best economy in most of our lifetimes. And the policy set that we implemented there uh, gave support to what was happening in the private sector and lifted us to new heights. Let's put that agenda out. Let's be bold about it. Let's hear from the White House on the details so that we can go iron out the policy on the Hill. That's really what I want to hear. And it has been frustrating that we haven't had that, that detail set yet. Congressman, why are they dragging their feet? What's the reason behind it at the moment from your standpoint? And is it making it difficult in your constituency to talk to your constituents about why there isn't a plan beyond the month of July? Well, look, uh, it, it's complicated because uh, everything has changed. You, you got, you, you, like The best health experts in the world were saying that summer was going to uh, sort of take this thing down like the flu season. And that was just a couple months ago. We had we had uh, health experts tell us not to wear masks at the beginning of the year. So the idea that you're going to see two months or three months in the future in this environment is is really hard. So I think there's some some understanding that we wanted to be hesitant uh, to to just lay out a whole broad policy path before we actually understood the, the confines of this. Now. We're in July. We need to see that clearly from the administration. And we need to see clearly from states and localities about school reopening, because that's a vital uh, economic set as well. If you can't have uh, child care, it's very difficult for you to get back to some semblance of normal economic life. Congressman, you're talking about a lack of cohesion and a lack of certainty around what the policies, the specific detailed policies are going to be going forward. And yet you're also, uh, you've admonished Fed Chair Jay Powell for perhaps blurring the lines between monetary and fiscal policy. Some argue that because there hasn't been a faster fiscal policy, it has forced the Federal Reserve to act more and in more varieties that go closer to fiscal policy to make up for that gap. What do you say about that? That. I mean, do you think that you have been too slow and forced the Fed to act more aggressively? Not yet. Uh, if we if we screw this up in in uh, late July and August, I think that will be the case. But I don't see that. What I what I was reminding when we have uh, the secretary of the Treasury before my committee and the secretary, I'm sorry, and the, the chair of the Federal Reserve, I always remind them that there is this wall between uh, monetary policy and fiscal policy, and the Hill should not get into the weeds of monetary mm -hmm. policy, nor should 
the Fed chair, direct fiscal policy. And I, I got to tell you, Jay Powell gets high marks uh, for his fast, uh, fast action uh, and being very uh, foresighted. Uh, his foresight is just absolutely amazing in this environment. Right. And when they and when they laid out Main Street lending, it took a long time to get that ramped up. But it was very clear sign to policymakers on the Hill that we've got the lending piece. You guys get in the stimulus piece. You guys get people connected with their employment and you get uh, people off the unemployment rolls or give them support so they can get back into the economy. And that's something that we hear clearly. So I think they've picked their lane smartly. I think they've stayed in their lane smartly, however, really aggressively. Um, and over the long term, we're going to have to have these Fed programs pulled back from the economy. But well, at this stage, we're still trying to put this house fire out. Congressman, we need to get down to Asheville and do a remote down there. Team surveillance, Asheville, North Carolina. I can see it now. Patrick McHenry, thank you so much. The 10th Congressional District of North Carolina. Right now, without question, our interview of the day, if not our interview of the week, on the social fabric of this nation. It would normally be an interview on trade with a former ambassador on trade with President Obama, Mr. Kirk of Texas, but that's not the case. In these times, we need to talk to Ron Kirk about the Reagan High School in Austin, Texas. We need to talk to him as 57th mayor of Dallas, Texas, and we need to talk to him about the path forward for this nation. Ron Kirk, we're honored to have you with us uh, today. We are seeing images of statues torn down. They're not going to do that in front of the Alamo, but we're seeing images coast to coast of statues being pulled down. How do we resurrect the new statues to come? How do we rebuild this nation with statues that our kids can be proud of? Well, Tom, first of all, thanks uh, for having me. And we are taking a turn that I, I didn't expect, but certainly not one that, that I haven't uh, spoken to quite a bit over the last several months. First of all, um, Tom, if we, to me, the more important journey isn't about which statutes we replace what with. The bigger journey is what's in our hearts and are we going to really get to the systemic um, um, matters that have allowed, uh, for the most parts, the overwhelming majority of blacks and Latinos and poor people in this country to be locked out of the economic system. And, and while um, and you mentioned, ironically, I graduated from John H. Reagan High School, another one of those, a school named for another one of those Confederate generals. My concern, if we spend more attention on taking down the names and the statutes, we don't address the systemic problem we have in some of our police communities over the disparate treatment of, of, of blacks and poor people, if we don't address those underlying factors that hold people of color black economically, uh, we really will have only just put up a new painting, right. came some new drapes, declared victory, and moved forward. And I'm much more interested in attacking the core issues uh, that have plagued this country for now. You know, whether you figure it's the last 70 years or 200 years, uh, but for right. far too long. 
I'm going to be blunt here. You grew up in the pragmatic, tough-as-nails politics of Texas. As Ann Richards gave you guidance, you lost to Phil Graham. There's always been a grace underneath the toughness of Texas politics. How do we get that grace back to Washington after a one-term President Trump or indeed after a two-term <laughs> President Trump? How do we get the grace back at the federal level? Well, I know this this is a business show, not a political show. Uh, but if nothing else, President Trump has taught us all that the tone at the top matters. And so if what people are really caring about is the restoration of grace and civility, and, and, and that's going to be a long uh, path in and of itself, then you have to start with the belief that this has to be a one-term president. I mean, he just does not have it within his DNA to ever demonstrate even a modicum amount of empathy or grace or forgiveness or recognition of when he's wrong. Uh, and voters, the American people have to recognize Donald Trump didn't start uh, this degradation of our civility. Uh, he did, I think, bring to the surface and give cover uh, to a lot of Americans who are afraid over our changing demographics. And we're seeing that all across the country. All you've got to do is look at any of your news feeds any day and see one more incident of a black family, an Asian family, a Hispanic family being attacked. There's a boldness there that I don't think people would have demonstrated if they weren't getting now very overt um, a direction from the White House. But the other thing I've told people, we're responsible for that. If you want more civility, if you want political leaders who are willing to find the common ground, stop voting for all of these jerks who go to Washington, refuse to compromise, see one another as enemy combatants uh, versus all of us who care about and love this country, want it to live up to our ideals and are willing to fight passionately for that. So it starts with the power of that vote. And I challenge the American people, vote for, vote for the kind of politicians you say in your heart you want to see representing us. But then don't stop there. Ambassador, Examine your own behavior in the workplace and in corporate America and see whether or not we're living up to those ideals. Ambassador, since this is a business show, I do want to just get a quick question in here. Given the fact that we've got so much emphasis on rejiggering supply chains in the wake of the pandemic, do you think that we do need a different trade policy with this in mind in order to bring medical supply production and other essential services back to the United States? Well, sure. And I know initially we were going to talk about the visit of, of President Lopez Obrador from Mexico to the U.S. But this is where trade policy does matter. And while uh, the new uh, NAFTA, the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement, is an improvement on it, but it's taken the old car in the garage that your parents gave you, putting a new engine in it, putting new bells and whistles, versus having a new architecture like uh, the Trump administration threw away with the Trans-Pacific Partnership that would allow us to have access to whether it's medical supplies or technology or raw materials that we need to drive our economy. And more importantly, give us free access to these new emerging markets that desperately want to grow 
using the best of what we make in America. But this pandemic well, <clears throat> has demonstrated the, the, the folly of having a tariff policy that ends up compromising our ability to access the very right. tools we need to fight now, this horrific disease. These are many conversations and we need longer conversations. Ron Kirk, we've got to get you back on again soon. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today. He's a former mayor of Dallas. Austin Goolsby of the University of Chicago. Uh, that was pretty good how I did that, Austin, how I got rocked. Yeah, you did, and you didn't even know, Red Gurujan and I are teaching a class together right now on policy <laughs> in an uncertain well, then we're world. Gonna, we're going to rip up the script right now because, folks, this is serious stuff. The third pillar was my book of the summer last year. It's on community, a primal scream by uh, Professor Rajan about how we have to change how we adapt at a macro basis and also at the micro basis of the community. And Austin Goolsby is one of the few guys I know that actually practices this within his academics as he did with President Obama. Austin, you're in the room with Raghu and you're talking the third pillar. How's America doing? The answer is not very well right now. Yeah, it's, look, it's a tough moment. We're in the ver- we're in the Zoom room. We don't uh, we we're not we're still socially distanced from one another. But um, look, I don't know how I don't quite know how we got to where we are on the economy. Not not just the health side, but on the economy because even though there's no vaccine. You've got most of the advanced countries of the world have got it fairly contained. They've got a handle on it. They can start coming back. And there are only a few exceptions. The U.S. is one, and Sweden's another, where they kind of let the virus get out of control in the name of helping their economy. But actually, you see, it actually hurt their economy. The, the economies in the U.S. and Sweden are going to have a hard time coming back if we don't contain the virus. Austin, Luigi's just uh, in- yeah, it's, it's oh, interesting, Tom. Paul, was, please, go ahead, Paul. Yeah, I was just going to say, Tom, you know, earlier we had Matt Winkler on, uh, Austin. He's the founder of Bloomberg News, and he has a wonderful column out this morning. And Tom and I were speaking with him, and he just kind of pointed out something that you were just saying, which is the U.S. has really done a poor job relative – to a lot of other countries around the world when you look at some of the data. What do you, what do you think the solution is from here? Because it doesn't appear to be a federal uh, effort to combat this virus and the economic impact. Yeah, look, that, that's the problem. The, the, the optimistic thing is if we don't dawdle forever, we're not that far from getting on the road that everybody else is on. Um, but... If there's not going to be a, a big federal push, which I, I agree with you, it seems like there's not, then I think it's going to move back to the states, and you're going to find this weird differential where you got a few states where they're just going to basically ignore the, the evidence or the experience of, of other places. And those, in not very short order, those economies are going to start to suffer again. And then in places where they're being judicious, um, they can get out of this. And the thing is, if you look at these countries in Europe, in Asia, Australia, New Zealand, 
it's not just that they're getting out of lockdown. Their kids are going back to school. Yep. They, they, in Norway, they go, they're back in the gyms, and they say they haven't had any cases of transmission in the gyms because they've got, the, they've got a, a handle on the spread of the virus. The thing is, look, nobody, everybody knows we want to get out of, of this withdrawn period, and we're all going stir-crazy. But if you do it too early, you set yourself back to square zero. If you don't like being mostly in your house, don't you go get everybody to go to a bar because you're going to have to go. Everybody's going to have to go back into their house. So, I mean, I guess this kind of goes back, and it's something Tom and I have been talking about before: states' rights versus, you know, the the heavy hand of the federal government here. Um, where do we go from here? I mean, is this simply? states having to come, you know, a come-to-Jesus type of moment where they get where maybe New York and New Jersey were several months ago? Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. You know, as, as I always say, the virus is the boss. And I got this research that I did with, uh, with Chad Severson where we got a, a lot of data on people's consumer uh, activity for, from their phones. We have it from the, from the businesses perspective. So how many people, customers, walk through the door at 2.3 million different businesses around the country? And in that data, it shows very clearly it's not policy that determines economic activity. So if you go to cities like the Quad Cities on the border of Illinois and Iowa, where there's a shelter-in-place order in Illinois, and there's no shelter-in-place order in Iowa. You would think that everybody be going to get their hair cut in Iowa and mm-hmm. not in Illinois, and so it would show that the policy makes a big difference, only it's not true. People stop getting their hair cut on both sides of that border. Even though they're allowed to go to the barber, right. they don't because they're afraid. And that idea that... Effectively, what's happening is people are trying to feel safe. And until we get a handle on the virus, people are not going to feel safe. And so it moves it back. Every state has got to get control of the spread of the virus. And if you do that, the economy wants to come back. It's just that if you go pull out the stops and get the virus spreading again, the economy is going to tank again because people are going to say, whoa, wait a minute, I don't want to go out there and get sick. Austin, we've got to leave it there. Austin Goldsby, thank you so much for the Blue School of Chicago. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.